Hello, and welcome to the Thought Leader's Voice. Today, we're discussing the energy evolution, a sustainable energy transition for growth. We're very pleased to be joined today by global energy expert, Adrian Del Maestro, Director of Research and Head of Global Thought Leadership in Energy at PwC Strategy and PwC's strategy consulting business. With his unique experience spanning three decades of consultancy, financial and professional services, Adrian has deep insights into the challenges and opportunities facing the energy sector and to leading thinking in this space. A very warm welcome to you today, Adrian. Thanks ever so much for joining us at a very busy and pivotal time for the industry. It's lovely to be with you and thank you for the invitation. Yes, I mean, you're quite right, a pivotal time for the sector, for the energy sector. And I was just musing to myself that if for those of us who are a little bit longer in the tooth, if you cast your minds back about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, you would have been lucky to have seen energy-related news hit the front page. You might have seen it on the back page. And now it's difficult to not see news uh, on social media, newspaper publications about energy in so many different guises. I mean, we've got uh, right now in Europe, clearly we've got the, uh, the issue of rising commodity prices, particularly uh, in the area of gas with repercussions really? that people hadn't really thought through about how how these rising commodity prices have knock-on effects to other sectors that are totally, in some areas, unrelated. Think of, for example, in the UK, how um, a shortage of carbon, I find this somewhat ironic that we have a shortage of carbon dioxide uh, in the UK on the back of rising gas prices with some agricultural uh, fertilizer plants closing, shutting down production, which had a knock-on effect on the food system. And we therefore had worries about where the shelves would be filled with food. So energy permeates our lives, and that's something more recent. But what, what's been a bigger trend is that push around the urgency of climate change. And that started probably in kind of pre-COVID times, 2019, where there was a very big push on ESG. And if you cast your minds back then, it was the public awareness of the urgency that came to the fore. So think yes. of Greta Thunberg and her activities of Extinction Rebellion. That very much came to the fore. And that put a lot of pressure on the energy industry, particularly um, the oil and gas industry, to respond. And subsequently, in 2020, you saw um, these plethora of net zero announcements across the, across the energy industry. Uh, the UK started that in 2019. Uh, and so you saw these aspirations to decarbonize companies for corporates, for cities, for countries, and that momentum has just carried on. So energy very much at the fore and an awareness that on the one hand, we need to decarbonize very quickly. You will have seen the IPCC report recently, which really kind of accelerated that sense of urgency though. So the window of opportunity we have to meet that 1.50 degree is still open, but it's getting smaller and we need to act. This is going to be the decisive decade. We need to make significant steps forward in decarbonization using technology, using regulation, if we have any hope of meeting that 1.5 degree scenario. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the scope and the scale of the issue is vast. And as you say, that sense of urgency has has really come to the fore fairly recently. Um, would you say it's been accelerated or hindered in any way by the COVID pandemic? I think on balance, COVID probably accelerated the energy transition. I think what you saw 
there are a number of dimensions to this. I think the big point is that you saw and you see governments now in various regions around the world looking to build back better. So looking at implementing packages to stimulate economic growth with a focus on a green agenda, with a focus on decarbonization. And that's very good. So think of Boris Johnson with his 10-point plan for green industrial revolution. Oh, even with the new administration in the US, there's a very big focus on decarbonization there in the agenda. Yes. I think the other thing from a more, um, from, a more uh, from a softer, more human perspective, uh, I think people just got in touch with nature a bit more during the COVID lockdown. We live in Wimbledon, which is a fairly rural bit of London, ironically enough, but you kind of heard the birds more. Yes. And there were those wonderful images of Venice without the boats on, you had crystal clear water, the air felt cleaner, you didn't hear airplanes flying over so much. And if you're a cyclist living in a city, the joys of cycling without any traffic. I think people got a taste of what life might be like if it was a, a lower carbon world. So I think that's something that people will hold on to. But the reality is as well that you saw a, a significant drop in carbon emissions during uh, COVID-19 because effectively large chunks of industry shut down. But you're seeing the bounce back in emissions. If there were any of us that had a hope that that we would sustain that, that emission uh, decline as a platform to build on, well, those hopes were, were ephemeral. And that's typically what happens with the global sector, with the global industry, when you have these massive events, like even the global financial crisis, you see a dip in emissions. And then yes. as the economic recovery builds momentum, those emissions bounce back, back up again. And I think that's, that's what's difficult about this transition. And I think the other aspect is, you know, we have an unpalatable addiction to hydrocarbons. And I personally find it very difficult to envisage a, a scenario in the next 20, 30 years where we still do not have some degree of dependency on hydrocarbons. So I can see the acceleration of renewables playing a much bigger role. I can see some of these other technologies that are going to complement renewables, for example, hydrogen. You know, if it can deliver on its promise in certain sectors, it can possibly provide a storage option for the intermittency of renewables. I think that's a positive story. If carbon capture takes off at scale, this is a technology that's been around a long time, but not at the scale that we need. But if that takes off, that will also help. But I still think for the foreseeable future, hydrocarbons have played such an important and big role in our lives. It's difficult to see their share disappear over the next 20, 30 years. We're probably still going to have some degree of dependency, uh, certainly on gas, but you will need technologies to mitigate and abate the impact of those hydrocarbons like carbon capture. Right, absolutely. And can you think of some good examples of some of the technologies that are being developed or are in play at the moment that, that can help mitigate that? I think the broad point I'd make first is there is no silver bullet for the energy transition. There is no one yeah. technology that's going to deliver that solution. It's going to be a portfolio of technologies. Mm -hmm. um, so wind, solar, et cetera, that, that are going to play. Some of the new technologies, I mean, the carbon capture technologies, Iceland's just launched the world's first major direct air capture facility. It's very small. There's a new one being built, I think, in the Permian that will be about 1 million tons. I think it's a million tons a year in terms of capacity. So these are interesting technologies that will help, but I mean, they're very new. I mentioned carbon capture. Carbon capture has been around a long time. One of the Norwegian 
oil and gas companies uh, pioneered that technology in the 1990s with one of their uh, offshore fields. And I think we've got something like 18, 19 major uh, carbon capture projects around the world, but those are going to play a potentially a big part. So if you think, for example, of industrial clusters is a good example because you're, they're hard to abate, they're difficult to electrify. So think of um, cement producers, steel producers, refineries, energy intensive businesses, difficult to electrify. And in the UK, we have uh, five major strategic clusters, but two of the big ones, Zero Carbon, Humber, Net Zero T-Sides. They're looking to use a number of technologies to decarbonize. And one of the interesting ones is using, potentially using technology to produce blue hydrogen, the hydrogen that's using carbon capture technology to eliminate most of the emissions. And then yes. they produce blue hydrogen that then will be pushed around that industrial cluster to be potentially used as a feedstock for industrial processes, potentially to be used as a feedstock for power generation. They're looking at producing one of the first 100% hydrogen powered plants potentially producing hydrogen for heavy transportation as a fuel uh, and potentially using hydrogen either to be blended into residential heating or at some point, probably a long way away, 100% hydrogen. But you can see these different technologies complementing one another and mm. having multiple end user applications. Uh, and again, just to reiterate that point, I know there's in the market now, there's an enormous amount of attention on hydrogen. And potentially hydrogen is a wonder fuel that can solve all our problems. It's not quite that simple, but mm. I do think there's, there, are, there are some end user applications for hydrogen that can potentially take off, such as the ones that I've just illustrated in that example. But you need to have all these other technologies working alongside. Of course, yeah. It's a really combined approach. And as well as developing all these different technologies and, and embedding them, um, there's the, the regulation to consider. There's other measures in terms of funding. You know who's going to yeah. be funding all of these these projects. Various different industry participants that need to come together to to make this happen. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, how different areas of the industry are working together on these these new technologies and initiatives, and also where the regulatory factor comes into play? Because obviously, you mentioned the news has been all about the energy sector recently, and I've seen obviously there's new regulatory reporting standards uh, coming out. There's yeah. you know the constant dialogue around how um, regulation can play a part and. And it would be interesting to get your perspective from talking to the companies about how they're able to make this transition, where regulation is, is helping, where it's hindering, and also working with other either trade bodies, policymakers, other participants that can help to get these initiatives up and running. So, Rachel, you touch on um, a lot of key themes there. Uh, I mean, you've alluded to the importance of partnerships, and you also alluded to the importance of costs, which I just, I'll just i touch on as well. But let's just start with partnerships first. So I think if we're going to be successful to decarbonize at the pace and scale that we need to, you need to have partnerships. And those partnerships take different forms. So they're clearly partnerships between governments, government and the private sector. And I think that's, that's a really critical pathway. If you look at, for example, let me give you an example of a partnership that worked well at that level and then a partnership that will need to work well at that level for another for a new technology so offshore wind in the uk is a bit of a success story 
we got to a rep from kind of nothing in the 2000s, early 2000s, we got to about 10 gigawatts capacity. And we have a new aspiration to hit about 40 gigawatts capacity by 2030. And that story is a story of success in terms of government setting a very clear ambition roadmap and enabling regulatory regime to attract private sector investment. And then the private sector coming in with all its skills, investment, innovation to deliver. So in the UK, the government set uh, a target that they wanted to grow the offshore wind industry. They set that vision. They set up a regulatory environment using something called contracts for differences, which allowed, provided some security for the private sector. Mm-hmm. And then you had, you know, the likes of Orsted offshore wind developers coming in and investing in the UK. And, and that sector grew uh, dramatically, as I've just alluded to. You need those kind of elements for some of these new technologies. So coming back to hydrogen again, if hydrogen is going to take off because it's an expensive technology, because you need to get it at scale, because there is uncertainty now, if you want to buy a fleet of hydrogen trucks as a, a company doing that, you're going to be worried about how you're going to refuel those trucks, yeah, to make sure you've got refueling instru- infrastructure. And if you're the person producing hydrogen, you want to make sure that you've got an end sector demand. So I think the governments in the UK and in other regions, they have a really important role in, again, setting the ambition, we're going to produce X gigawatts of hydrogen. We are going to invest a little bit of money to incentivize through pilots and demonstration plants. And we're going to set up a regulatory regime that will encourage uh, investment from the corporate sector. So I think that's the big role for government and and the importance of government private sector partnerships but also you have these partnerships between companies and personally what i find really interesting is the plethora of partnerships you see being announced in the energy transition with companies that you wouldn't have thought were natural partners so you've got oil and gas companies partnering with offshore wind developers to produce green hydrogen yes you've got oil and gas companies partnering with automotive manufacturers because they see the opportunity for, of the OEMs to produce the hydrogen trucks and the energy company to produce, to make sure there's the refueling and infrastructure for hydrogen. And, and you see all these different partnerships. And the reason why they're happening is because you need, not all these companies have the capabilities to deliver the solution. So you need the partner to build those capabilities. And also it's a great way of, of syndicating, mitigating that technical risk in the technology as well as um, the financial risk. So Lots of partnerships between governments and corporates, lots of partnerships mm-hmm. between the corporates. And I think just one other element about that corporate partnerships, it's interesting to see how, because of the nature of the energy sector, you're seeing a convergence of multiple sectors. So yes. the easy examples, think of electric vehicles, yeah? So you're going, to have, you're going to have oil and gas companies looking to invest in EVs and particularly EV charging, because mm-hmm. if you've got a big retail business that sells gasoline and diesel, it's a pretty smart move to also start and putting charge points there. So as the fleet electrifies, you're drawing custom to your retail outlets. Yeah. yeah. So oil and gas companies are going to, utility companies are going into EV charging because they see another way to generate revenue aside from the sale of electricity. And then you've got technology companies coming in because they provide the platforms that connect the electric vehicles to other electric vehicles, to the charge points, to the home. So you've got a kind of technology angle. You've got the automotive guys who produce the electric vehicle. So you see all these different market participants centering around their technology. And therefore, you, it's only natural that they form partnerships because 
and effectively they're all operating within the same ecosystem. So I think there's a big theme there. And I think the other thing that you talked about, you just alluded to was cost. And again, this is, this is I think, is, this is one of the um, palatable realities about the energy transition is it's going to cost a lot. We did a report last year looking at the UK at major infrastructure. So power generation, buildings, uh, electric vehicle transport, digital infrastructure. And just for the UK over the next 10 years, if we're going to make that infrastructure net zero compliant, is going to cost us something of the order of 400 billion pounds, which is a huge number. And I think what it illustrates is how much we will have to spend in order to decarbonize and who's going to pay for this because yes. this inevitably will hit consumers in some shape or form. They need to be aware of that. And that mm. is the cost that we're going to have to bear. And then how will we fund this? You know, which corporates, which lending institutions are going to have the scale of capital to deploy in order to help us decarbonize. So I think this raises lots of issues. Absolutely. Uh, and it also brings it nicely on to what the role of the end consumer is in maintaining and developing this sustainable transition. Is that an education thing? I think certainly cost comes up time and again. You mentioned your, your research. We did um, some recent um, research with the financial services sector to look at their sustainability initiatives and cost kept coming up as the highest barrier. And as we've seen with consumers, there's great appetite for green products and, and services and building a better future, but then cost keeps coming up as an issue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, Rachel, spot on. I mean, the consumer is all important. I mean, we are the consumer. And I think the big difference we've seen in the last 10 years is with the support of social media, mobile technology, the consumer can shape policy, the consumer yes. can shape the direction of corporates. Uh, and that's a pretty powerful um, influencer. And I think in general, in that context of ESG, I think that's a force for good. I think the challenge one of the challenges you've just alluded to is education. So people just need to understand the implications of all of this. So there is a cost implication to this. There is an implication about how quickly we can transition from one type of fuel to another type of fuel. Uh, and that's not going to be, you know, that dependency to some extent on hydrocarbons, particularly gas, for the foreseeable future. That is not an easy narrative for governments to tell consumers about because there's an expectation that you can just move from one fuel technology to the other overnight, which is not the case because the lights will go out. Yes. So there, there is, it's a transition. It will take time. So I think there's a big theme around educating consumers about how we're going to do that, what we will need to um, sacrifice in order to get there uh, and the costs as well. So I think that's a long journey. Indeed, a, a level of transparency that uh, perhaps hasn't been there previously, um, highlighting these issues. Yes, it's not going to be, be a quick fix. It's not going to be an instant change, but it's this iterative process and everyone's involved and everyone has a role to play in it. So that, that education piece is vital, I think, if we're going to support the industry to be able to move forward. I'm thinking back to, say, 10 years ago, talking about clean technology and, and renewables, it was quite niche. We're talking about it from a corporate finance perspective. And as investment was going into infrastructure post-financial crisis, it was the new exciting thing. And I was interested in your, your point about how it's become mainstream news. So that in itself, I think, is a force for good and, and yeah. shows that, that there is a level of education happening. There's there's that interest and appetite to be able to, to help affect change. 
And I think that point you you touched on around power of social media and and connection and communication now to be able to shape policy. I, I mean, that's a pretty big thing, isn't it? I think even in in recent years, that wasn't the case. So being able to do that in a in a positive way and, and to be able to gather support through media like social media channels or other means. And as you mentioned, we've got spokespeople and various collaborations worldwide that are talking about the issues and keeping it front of mind. Yeah, yeah. How does that uh, tally with the regulatory framework as it stands at the moment and, and where it will need to evolve? So you mentioned, obviously, a success story with government paving the way for wind power. And essentially, it was the gateway by creating the regulation to be able to fund that and, and to be able to support it and uh, move it forward you know, at a realistic timescale. Um, how do you think that's going to affect regulatory initiatives going forwards? Well, I think I think the direction of travel for regulation, so the regulatory environment around decarbonisation is only going to get more stringent. I think that's mm. the direction of travel. I think you have some regions more than others leading the way. So clearly the EU is a good example. There was the um, Fit for 55 initiative that's been announced this year. So EU looking to reduce its emissions by 55% by 2030. And they introduced a number of um, elements such as the carbon border adjustment tax, for example, for imports of high carbon products. Yes. Uh, and, and, and Europe is very much uh, on the, always like to describe it as, as on the, the pointy end of the regulatory environment. So this, they're very much leading the way. Now, that different regions respond differently. So you can see the US there under the new administration beginning to push that regulatory environment. They're somewhat behind us, but they're, they're heading in that direction. There are other regions that are, are less exposed to that regulatory environment. Think of um, the global south, for example. But slowly, slowly, the direction of travel means that these that regulatory environment will begin to pervade all these different countries, and they will all be forced to decarbonize more and more quickly. But it's going to be up to a few of the bigger regions to lead the way in that direction. Mm-hmm. And how do you think that's going to work into changing business strategies to obviously account for more stringent regulation, to account for costs and and different ways of doing business. We've talked about the consumer role and we've talked about cost as being flagged as a a barrier by consumers and businesses alike. So uh, how are you seeing business strategies evolving to shape a cleaner business? So fundamental question, Rachel. I think Business strategies are having to become much more dynamic. I mean, again, cast your minds back kind of 20 years ago, a company would set a strategy maybe for five, 10 years and then review it in five, 10 years time. Now they need to adapt their strategy on a more regular basis. And because of this environment where there is a big push for decarbonization, they're having to look. On the one hand, if you're an energy company, you're seeing clearly lots of examples of companies shifting their portfolio that may have once been focused on um, oil and gas production, mm-hmm. where they are now looking to build a much bigger low carbon business. So if you think of the European super majors, the oil and gas super majors are very much a good example of that, yes. where they're basically using their legacy oil and gas business to generate cash flow that they're investing in low carbon. So 
in offshore wind, in solar PV, in electric vehicles, hydrogen, etc. And they're shifting that portfolio over time to grow that low carbon business. And that requires a company to be very agile, use a lot of technology to be much more efficient, and also have a compelling narrative for their shareholders and stakeholders that they are on this journey and it, they will get there. Uh, yes. Then you're seeing broader corporates announcing net zero, uh, pledging net zero commitments, and then looking at their organization and trying to figure out what can I do to decarbonize. And one of the early areas that they're looking at are the, their fleets, so their, their stock of vehicles, cars, vans, trucks, and they're looking to decarbonize those. And for the easier part of that challenge, they're electrifying the lighter vehicles, they're looking at other alternative technologies for the heavier vehicles. In, in all these examples, companies are having to have a dynamic strategy. So they're seeing what's happening now, what's likely to come up on the horizon in terms of the regulatory environment. What do we need to do with our strategy? How do we manage our portfolio? What can we do to decarbonize our operations? Uh, and I think the, the interesting thing that I certainly see with many of our clients is it's changing the way they think. So greening, decarbonizing your organization isn't just simply, right, I'm going to switch my 100 diesel trucks into 100 electric cars, yeah? It's that, but it's also the way I run my business is going to change. Yes. I'm not going to be able to do certain things that I used to do. And even a really silly example, you've got, you know, for those famous office parties that you would have organized off the cuff and you say, well, we're going to take everybody to an island somewhere and have a great time. You're now thinking, well, what's my carbon footprint if I do that? Better if I do something Absolutely. locally. Yeah. So it's literally changing the way you think and the operations you undertake. So I think that's the biggest change that companies are dealing with. That's really encouraging, actually. I think getting people to think differently and, uh, and approach business in, the, in a different way rather than just making the odd change here and there, looking at it as a whole, uh, looking at the overall strategy and looking at that um, stakeholder dialogue as well, making sure that you say this meaningful change happening and that's being communicated, why we're doing it this way, what we're hoping to achieve uh, with an eye on those future goals. I'm wondering yeah, how this affects job roles and within organisations. Um, obviously, there's a, a need for new technologies. There's changing almost into different sectors. There's new ways of the supply chain and uh, at each level of, of the business that's changing. So how are you seeing that change the roles within the organisations as they're evolving these strategies? So I think, well, clearly one of the top of mind changes is the whole shift to remote working. So clearly that's had a, a positive impact in terms of, you know, the ways and changing the way we operate and lowering our carbon footprints. You're not jumping on planes all the time to go and have a meeting. You're doing video conference calls. So I think that's been a positive trend. That has its own challenges as, as we move to more permanent models of maybe hybrid models where you have a large chunk of the workforce working remotely. How do you make sure that they still have the same opportunities for career progression, for, for training, for learning that they used to have when they were physically in an office? I mean, there's a lot of um, businesses I can think of that have big field service operations where you earn your credits by going out in the field and doing certain things. But if you're working remotely, you're not going to get that exposure. So how can you do that? So I think there's a big theme around human resources, making sure that they can retain their talent and grow 
their talent, particularly in a, a remote working environment. You talked about the supply chain. I mean, the supply chain in its broadest sense will need to decarbonize. Because if I think of the en- in the energy sector, just to bring it to life, you've got energy companies, oil and gas companies that have a strategic focus on decarbonization. And they will be looking to their supply chains. I think of oil field service companies, for example, who will also have to decarbonize, who that will have to diversify. And not only to provide the skills and services to support the low carbon agenda, building offshore uh, wind farms, for example, but also in the way that they operate, that they have credentials and having decarbonized the way they operate because the end client is decarbonizing and has that narrative about what they're doing to change society. Therefore, the supply chain has to follow suit as well. So they're they're very long-term, very pervasive impacts and implications of all this whole decarbonization agenda. Absolutely. And obviously, that key point being decarbonization. But also, uh, what about the social aspects of, of ESG? How is that affecting overall strategies, particularly within the energy sector? Yeah, again, so clearly another big theme. And ESG is really driving the way companies react, the way they behave, the way they respond to market trends. ESG is driving, impacting, influencing how capital is deployed in the market. Yeah, yes. There is lots of capital in the market that can be invested and a lot of it's going into green, low carbon technology. So the mm-hmm. ESG is driving that agenda. And I think what's interesting is clearly there's a lot of focus in the energy sector on the environmental aspect of ESG, but equally the social side, I think is really interesting because if you look historically, and just pick a simple example of how oil and gas companies in the past, when they would extract resources from a country, They would go to make sure that there was an exchange of skills with the host government, develop local content, build academies for technical education, etc. So there was an exchange of capabilities. I think there's still that opportunity now, but it's much more now there's that whole energy transition wrapper around it. So I think there's a big role on the social side for the sector, the energy sector, to play in enabling that transition. So if you think about how much how these companies have these energy companies have a global footprint they have significant capital to deploy they've got very strong project management technical engineering skills these are all elements that you need to enable the transition and a good example again is with those industrial clusters that i alluded to earlier in the uk production of hydrogen use of carbon capture technology there's a big opportunity for the sector to help accelerate those industrial clusters, which will Mm -hmm. generate local employment uh, and also build a new economy around some of these new technologies that will have a big impact on the rest of the country. So big role to play there, particularly on the social side. Absolutely. Yeah, it's fascinating to see it circular. (laughs) There's a lot of talk about the circular economy, but it it really is a circular process. It's interesting to see it from that perspective. What do you think are the, the key? We've talked about education, we've talked about communication and different areas of, uh, of industry working together. What are the, the key takeaways that you would like to get across? I think if we take a step back, because we've, we've covered a lot, Rachel, if I take a step back, um, certainly what I'd like our listeners to think about is one, the urgency to decarbonize. Yeah, yes. we, we need to really pull out all the stops. I think the importance of collaboration across industry and government to facilitate those solutions that can allow us uh, to decarbonize. 
And probably the last thing is, which you highlighted, is the importance of the individual consumer. We yes. all can shape our destiny and we should all be encouraging our colleagues, stakeholders, governments do everything possible to decarbonize. Brilliant. Very well put and a lot of food for thought for our listeners today. Thank you, Adrian. Is there anything else that you wanted to to mention while we have you here with us? No, great speaking to you, Rachel. Really enjoyed the conversation and I hope our listeners get some pleasure out of this. Thanks a lot. I'm sure they will. Thank you ever so much. It's been great.